The Apostle John walked closely with Jesus during all of his earthly ministry. He was used of God to give us a remarkable, intimate, powerful account of the ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of John was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John composed his Gospel to provide reasons of saving faith proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers the gift of salvation. He declares these things are written so that you may believe. So that you may believe. Last week, we, we left off in sort of the middle of a paragraph in verse 37 as two disciples who had been disciples of John the Baptist turned to become disciples of Jesus. In verse 37, the two disciples, we know that they were Andrew, who is named later in this very paragraph, and John, who never names himself. And so the fact that, that, that John, the author of this gospel, doesn't name this second early follower of Jesus is a strong hint, it's him. He just doesn't like to name himself. So as Andrew and John begin to follow Jesus, we join the narrative in verse 38. Here we go, John chapter one, verses 38 through 51. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You, you are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This, um, this this pair of paragraphs, this partial paragraph and then this entire paragraph that kind of gets us to the end of chapter one, uh, illustrates one of the marvelous tensions that is present in God's word. God has told us that his ways are beyond our ways. That's not surprising. He's uh, been around forever and we haven't. He knows everything and we don't. He's all wise and we aren't. And while his word is 
entirely true. There are, there are truths about him that are expressed in his words, in his word, in ways that create sometimes some, some tension in our understanding. I've chosen as my title this morning, Seeking the One Who Seeks. And this thing of, of, of seeking Christ and being sought by Christ very much in view in this section of scripture. I've given you some bullet points if you have the outline or if you have been printed it out or digitally on your, your device there. Here's some, some sort of introductory, again, sort of theological context. First, it is evident from scripture that lost mankind is commanded to seek God. There are any number of scriptures I could quote to substantiate that point for the sake of simplicity and timeliness. I've chosen John chapter seven, I mean Matthew, pardon me, Matthew seven, verses seven and eight. This is from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Lost mankind is commanded to seek God. However, the word of God also teaches that lost mankind is dead spiritually in sin. Not sick, not comatose, not dozing, graveyard dead. And as a consequence of spiritual death, while we are commanded to seek God in our lost condition, simply put, nobody does. Nobody does. Again, myriad scriptures, many scriptures I could use to illustrate that point. For simplicity, Romans chapter three, verses 10 through 12. Romans here, quoting Psalm 14, or paraphrasing Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. I giggle every time I hear about a, a church that's decided to go seeker-sensitive in their philosophy since there's no such thing as a seeker. Somebody buy them a copy of Romans. All have turned, I'm sorry, that was catty. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So all are commanded to seek God in their lost condition. Nobody does it. And there we are up a creek if the Lord doesn't make the move. And thankfully, he seeks us. Luke 19, verse 10, in his conversation with Zacchaeus the tree climber, Jesus makes this statement, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Thankfully, Jesus seeks us, and in response to his seeking love, we can turn and seek him, as we'll see happening in the verses we're studying this morning. All right, Roman number one, seeking after Jesus. Seeking the one who seeks. Verses 38, pardon me, 38 through 42. Jesus, literally walking away from the conversation with John the Baptist, is aware of John and Andrew following him. So he turns around and asks this 
marvelous question. What are you seeking? Now, it's the, it's the first time in the Gospel of John we, we hear Jesus talk. It's his first line, if you put it in dramatic terms. It's his first uh, words in the Gospel of John. What are you seeking? It's a really great, great question. And it invites a, a variety of answers. Well, I'm, I'm seeking someone who will make certain that my life never has any messiness in it. <laughs> Keep looking. I'm seeking somebody who will assure me that all of my outcomes in life are to my liking. <laughs> Keep seeking. I'm seeking somebody who'll make me rich. Keep seeking. I'm seeking someone who'll see to it that if I have enough faith, I'm always healthy. Keep seeking. Because you hadn't found that. It's a marvelous question because, well, let me point out something else about this question. <laughs> you, you and I can use questions for two different purposes. At least two different purposes. Let me see if I can illustrate. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing a, a wristwatch, but, but suppose I'm not wearing a watch, and I say to you, do you, um, are, are, uh, what, what, I'll make it simple. What, what time is it? Why would I ask you that question? If I ask that most simply, why would I ask, don't, don't sit there looking pious and stunned. I mean it as a real question. We're okay. What do, I, what do I mean when I say to you, what time is it? I want you to tell me what time it is because I don't know. All right. So one reason we ask questions is to tell us something we don't know. All right. Let's put the same question in a different context. Suppose we're supposed to meet for lunch at noon and you walk in at 1218. And I say to you, what time is it? Do I already know what time it is? Oh, you better believe it. I am trying to draw something out of you, right? I'm trying not to get information I don't have, but to draw out of you something I need you to consider. Well, with Jesus, it's always that second category. Because see, when Jesus asks a question, he always already knows the answer. He's never looking for information he doesn't have because there's no such thing as information that he doesn't already have. He's God. So when he turns around and says to these guys, what are you seeking? He's not looking for them to fill him in. He's looking for them to get clear within themselves regarding their motive, regarding what, what, what God's already up to in their lives. It's a marvelous question. And in the answer to the question, we learn three things. First, we learn that Jesus is worth my time. I love the way the guys answer the question. They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, there's a lot 
to that question. That question is not just surface. What are you seeking? More with you. More time with you. We want to we hang closer to where you are. This is, this is early in the ministry of Jesus. And maybe these guys don't even know how to articulate all that they have found in Jesus and all that they, they desire of Jesus. But they know this, whatever it is they're looking for, it comes down to Jesus. And it comes down to, to spending more time with Jesus. And, and, and John tells us that they stayed with Jesus all that day for the time they're having the conversation. It's about the 10th hour. Now, John's use of time references can be a little confusing. Sometimes he seems to use the Roman system that started at midnight, and sometimes he tends to use the Jewish system that started at dawn. So you and I have no idea whether this is happening at 10 a.m. or 4 p.m. <gasps> it doesn't matter. Bottom line, we want to spend more time with Jesus, and so they did. You know, everybody's overscheduled, everybody's too busy. You're overscheduled and too busy, and I'm overscheduled and too busy. It's almost become a virtue in our culture to be overscheduled and too busy. Ask anybody, have you got a lot going on? The only person, there's one category of person who will tell you they don't have much going on, and that is the, the proudly and recently retired. What you got going on, they will smile and say, not a thing, and I paid dearly for the privilege. More power to you. But especially among those who are still, still working, oh man, I'm so buried, oh man, I'm so busy. And, and we are, we are. Sometimes uh, I'll, take, I'll take a phone call at, at work and, and one of you, and I, I you know, I, I love that, getting a call, and a, it's a joy to say hi, but, but you lead with, hi, Pastor Russell, are you busy? That is not a question, that is a trap. Because if I answer, not particularly, you're thinking, why do we pay you? And if I answer, yes, I'm slammed, you're thinking I want to brush you off and get off the phone. There is no good answer to that question. So I usually answer, I am quite busy, but I always have a few minutes. I've learned to navigate the questions Baptist ask because I've been doing this for a long time. Okay, you're busy. Okay, you're overscheduled. Okay, you have amazing demands on your time and attention. Okay. If we took your last week and sort of made a pie chart of the, of the priorities that you've given your time to in the last week, is Jesus worth your time? I mean, would he show up? I'm not talking about your, your five-minute quiet time in the morning that you check off like an item on a pre-flight checklist before you do your day. It's world's better than nothing. But is that how you treat the relationships you mean to maintain? He's worth your time. Second, he's worth your testimony. He's worth your testimony. Andrew has a somewhat more biblically famous brother by the name of Simon, who later will be Simon Peter. Uh, one of the two 
who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own, his, his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. And then he brought him to Jesus. I want you to see those three verbs. He, he found somebody and then he said to him and then he brought him to Jesus. Andrew Brand new, born again, already understands he's supposed to be finding somebody, speaking to somebody, bringing somebody to Jesus. We talked about testimony last week and the, and the three component parts of, of, of your testimony. I was, I was lost before Jesus Christ. I was found by Jesus Christ and I'm being changed since Jesus Christ. Doesn't have to be super elaborate. I was a nine-year-old boy in the fall of 1971. Raised in a household where, where the things of God were a thing. My mom and dad were and are believers. And I knew all that churchy stuff. As a nine-year-old boy, I had gone to church all my then somewhat short life, and I had memorized some scripture, and I knew all the songs and all that nine-year-old stuff. But I had also learned something else as a nine-year-old boy. By the way, I am a middle child. Are there any other hopelessly dysfunctional, maladjusted? That is, are there any other middle children in the room? Where are the middle children? Yeah, I knew it. I see some of y'all's hands go up and I would have called it. Yep, yep, I know you. You know me. I had learned by the age of nine that lying got stuff done. You could, you could move the ball in really cool ways if you'd say things that weren't true because sometimes teachers didn't see what happened. And so you could make up a version of it that suited your purposes and sell it. And that might work. And even as bright as mom and dad are, I'm a middle child. I'm interested in creating trouble in both directions. I could get my big brother in hot water and my little brother in hot water by making up and I believe as I recall I was starting to get good at it one night in the fall of 71 we were watching of all things Billy Graham on TV and I don't remember what the message was specifically about but I remember him saying that my sin had separated between me and God and my sin debt was piling up and I was gonna stand before God one day and stand in his judgment and the only hope I had was that I would repent of my sin and follow Jesus. And I remember the dawning realization in my heart itself a gift from God, I now know quite clearly, that dawning realization that I stood guilty before a holy God in desperate need of forgiveness. And so that night, watching that television thing, I turned from my sin and followed Jesus and was born again sitting right there. 
I wish I could say that I haven't told a lie since. Let me tell you what has changed. Should I tell a lie? God, the Holy Spirit, who's lived within me since that time, makes me go back and fix it. That's embarrassing and hard and honestly, generally not worth it. So I lie way less and I lie lie way less comfortably. And that and in a hundred other ways, God, the Holy Spirit, is chipping off the parts of me that don't look like Jesus. And sometimes it's gradual and sometimes it's dramatic and sometimes it's, it's just a little change and other times God takes the hammer and chisel. And I'm not like Jesus yet, but one day I will be and I'm more like Jesus than I ever was. Now, that is my testimony. And you should be able to do that anywhere, anytime. I was lost before Jesus. I was found by Jesus. I'm being changed since Jesus. He found somebody. He spoke to somebody and he brought them to Jesus. He's worth my trust also. Let her see. He's worth my trust. If I follow him, he'll change me. Simon Peter is brought to Jesus at this time, just Simon. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon. Simon means one who hears. It's like, you know, all these great names. And it's a common name. There are at least a dozen guys in the New Testament, different guys whose name is Simon. And it's like the parents said, you know, what are our hopes? What are our dreams for our son? Well, that he'll never be deaf. Not terribly ambitious, but okay, Simon. Jesus looking on the heart of Simon. Jesus knowing, knowing the character of Simon knows that Simon is a guy who leads with his big mouth all the time. Simon is a guy who, who wishy-washes all the time. He's indecisive, he's loud-mouthed, he's impetuous, he's a bit of a mess. And Jesus says, let me name your Rocky. Because by the time I'm done with you, you're going to have rock-like character. That's what Cephas and Peter mean. Rocky. If you knew Simon, you'd giggle at that name. If you're familiar with Simon Peter, you get it. How's Jesus changing you? Are you willing to trust him? There's an occupational hazard for those of us who've been Christians for a while. We can, we can not deliberately, but slide into a viewpoint that says, well, Jesus saved me and he changed me and well, that's done. What's the last thing that Jesus demanded you change in your life? What's the last thing that following Jesus caused you to go, oh, I hadn't seen that in his word before, but I see it now. Therefore, I must respond as one who's following Jesus. Are you still following Jesus in a real present tense way? Do you still trust him with his still transformative future for you where you are today? Or are you kind of just done? Has he done all the work on you he needs to do? Oh, you can trust him. Those who seek Jesus. And then, Roman numeral two, those who are sought by Jesus. Sought by Jesus. 
The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Jesus issues his favorite invitation. It's about 30 times in the four gospels. Jesus gives an invitation that can be summarized in one word, follow. Later on in the New Testament, in the writings of the apostles, by the way, the the one word challenge that sums up Christianity is repent. With Jesus, the one word is follow. And by the way, following includes repentance and repenting includes following. They don't exclude one another, they blend together and, and following and repenting are the heart of the gospel challenge. Follow me. So letter A, he summons He goes to where they are. He decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. And having gone all the way to Philip as the seeking savior, he then says, you, follow me. So he summons. Letter B, he satisfies. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So what does he satisfy? What he doesn't satisfy is everything on our self-generated wish list. I want to be real clear on that. You have a self-generated wish list, and I do too, and that's not his obligation. Sometimes he'll surprise you with gracious and wonderful things he does for you that you do not deserve and have no right to expect, but because he's just gracious. But what's guaranteed, here we see it in the text, first he satisfies all the qualifications. There are centuries of of men writing the Old Testament under the inspiration of God. It covers from, from eternity past to a few hundred years before Jesus came. And there are, there are dozens of qualifications. From Genesis 3, he's got to be born from a woman. He's got to be descended from Abraham through Judah, through David. He's got to be born in Bethlehem of a virgin. And myriad other qualifications. And here Nathaniel already knows This one, pardon me, Philip, already knows. He meets the qualifications. He can be the Savior. Second, he meets all the objections. Nathaniel has an intellectual problem. Jesus, while born in Bethlehem, had grown up in Nazareth. And and Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of there? I have an intellectual problem with that kind of Savior. I have an intellectual problem with that kind of Savior. Learn this about unbelief and its intellectual problems. Unbelief is not an intellectual problem. Unbelief is a love of sin. Unbelief comes because this is condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, says the word of God. When you're talking to somebody about Jesus and they're raising intellectual problem after intellectual problem after intellectual problem, just ask them, what sin is it that you love so much? What sin is it that is the defining love of your life? 
They'll look at you like you've read their mind. You haven't. You've just described back to them their heart's condition. Maybe they'll have none of it, but maybe you can get their attention. So Jesus will meet all the objections. He said to him, come and see. Just come and see. Just make an honest examination of the claims of this word, the claims of the Savior in this word, the claims of the gospel that is the central message of this word. This Bible is an anvil that has worn out millennia of hammers. Bang on it all you want. It will be here intact when you're done. He satisfies. Let her see, and I love this one, he sees. He sees. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, here comes an Israelite who shoots straight. That's a paraphrase, but that's what he meant. Now, why would Jesus say that? Because just a moment before, Nathanael had said, I don't want anything to do with him. He's from Nazareth, and that's not such a great place. So Jesus says, I like the fact that you tell it like it is, at least as you see it. I can work with that. Nathanael goes, well, how in the world do you know me? And Jesus says, you know, and you and I don't know, it may have been that morning, may have been the day before, may have been last week sometime, but recently enough that Nathaniel remembered it, he had been hanging out under a fig tree, and Jesus said, back then when you were hanging out under that fig tree, I saw you there. I saw you there. <laughs> On your worst day ever, he saw it. Your greatest triumphs ever, he saw those too. We long to be known. We long to be understood. He does. He does, and he cares. Man, there's somebody who has literally got all the dirt on me that there is, loves me anyway, is breathtaking. True about you too. It's also very liberating, by the way, when somebody comes up to you and says, I heard something about you that's just terrible. Learn to smile and go, praise God, you don't know the worst stuff. There's plenty of that too. And the one who's got the whole resume loves me anyway. And then he saves. He saves. Nathaniel, in response to just that little thing, the fact that Jesus can see things and know things he ought not see and know lights Nathaniel up. Nathaniel says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. It's, it's, it's hilarious. The heart of unbelief will not believe in spite of undeniable evidence. Later we're gonna meet the Jerusalem leadership crowd, the scribes and Pharisees, and they are going to see with their own eyes Jesus caused the blind to see, caused the lame to walk, called literally dead people back from the grave, and they're gonna say, how can we make this thing go away? Here, Nathaniel just sees a fairly minor thing. You know stuff you shouldn't know. You're God, the son of God, the king in Israel. Jesus saves, even though he knows my past as he knew Nathaniel's, and he promises me a future. You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you. 
that double truly, sometimes translated in older translations, the double verily, verily, verily. John is the only gospel writer that uses that idiom. Jesus certainly used it. John is the only one that records it. Uh, just as a point of, you know, in case that comes up on double jeopardy this week. Truly, truly, I say to you, learn to leave him alone, Russell. Keep walking. You will, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Nathaniel, you, you appreciate what I've shown you? Wait till what you're going to see. I have so many things to show you. I have so many places to take you. In fact, you're going to come to realize that when Jacob, back in the Old Testament, had that dream of a ladder connecting heaven and earth, yeah, that's me. I am the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder. And oh, wow, do I have some stuff to show you. That title that he concludes verse uh, 51 with, Son of Man, is Jesus' favorite messianic title for himself. More than 60 times in all four Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's from Daniel chapter 7. If you're a, if you're a podcast subscriber, my beyond the notes that I'll uh, put out this week, we'll look into this title, Son of Man, and all that it means and why Jesus was so fond of it. So there's a shameless plug for you because beyond the notes exists for stuff I don't have time to cover, which is everything past this point. Look, if you've never followed Jesus, know that if in you there is any awakening desire to turn from your sin, any awakening awareness that you will one day stand before God, that is a gift he is giving you right now in this moment. Don't press it down. Ask him to make it stronger and come to Jesus. If you know Jesus, can you remember the last time you sought somebody out, found somebody, spoke to them, sought to bring them to Jesus? That should not be an unusual activity for the follower of Christ. It should be in large part what we're about.